Hey, this is Randy Gage, and you're listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Hey, what's up, podcast peeps? I hope you're doing amazing. I got another uh, change up for you today. I hope you heard the last show, which was the uh, interview with Bob Berg. Kind of a different uh, change of pace for the format and Today is something also very special uh, because it isn't a podcast I recorded for you. It's a chance for you to eavesdrop in on something really special. The backstory is this. I am doing a author apprenticeship program where it's for people who are interested in writing an amazing book. They have a message to share with the world and they want to do it through a book. So it's something I've promoted for a couple of weeks now and I have the initial class set of people who are going through it. And uh, originally we were going to do it a few weeks ago here in San Diego, but I didn't realize when I picked the dates that that was the same weekend as Comic Con, which is a <laughs> just an amazing time here in San Diego. But we get like 200,000 crazy Trekkies and Star Wars fans and uh, Hellboy and, you know, all the sci-fi stuff, Avengers, and there's not a hotel room for 200 miles unless you're willing to pay $1,000 a night. I mean, a hostel for the weekend would be like $800, $1,000. I mean, it's crazy. So we rebooked it, but meanwhile, two of the people in the program, Holly, uh, well, I'm going to call her Holly Pre because that's her, her name on her channel that I want you to check out, uh, and Joey, uh, who's from the Cleverest Group, Joey Leslie, who I call JoJo in the recording, as you'll hear, they had already bought tickets and they said, hey, we're, we're just going to come anyway and we're going to brainstorm and they found places to stay and they thought they would brainstorm and mastermind a little on their book project. So I told them, well, if you're here, just come by my apartment and we're going to spend a couple hours and, and brainstorm. And we recorded it because I wanted them to have a record of ideas that came up and because a lot of times the, the copy you use to promote something or a breakthrough idea or a title comes up in these mastermind sessions. So I, we recorded this without planning to make it for you, right? But I knew, oh wow, I gotta share this with the podcast people. Because there's so many lessons here about personal branding, finding your purpose, doing work that you love, uh, building a tribe, knowing how to connect with your tribe, how you might put those ideas together in a book. Um, so I said, all right, I got their permission, so they both agreed. So if you wanna check them out, Joey runs the Cleverest uh, Creative Agency. So his website is cleverestgroup.com. So that's clever, C-L-E-V-E-R-E-S-T, cleverestgroup.com. And then Holly, find her on Instagram, I am Holly Pre. So I am 
Halle, H-A-L-L-E-P-R-E. And then her YouTube channel isn't uh, like branded, so just search Halle Pre on YouTube. Actually, there's a link to her YouTube channel on her Instagram account. So uh, if you want to check them out and see what they're about. Um, so anyway, it's a long session. It's not the typical episode, but uh, I've always, uh, I love what Tim Ferriss does when he does these two and three hour podcasts, getting into a deep dive with people. I just didn't want to do that every week and be on the hunt for guests and setting up interviews and all of that stuff. I like to have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with you. Uh, but, uh, you know, when I get an opportunity like this, something that I think can really help you, uh, I want to share it with you. And both of them agreed to do that. Uh, so before we get into it, final uh, warning, this is not safe for work, not safe for little ears. Um, and I didn't want to edit it. Um, first of all, if I did, it would have taken a year because of all the profanity I use when I'm <laughs> masterminding and brainstorming. Uh, I really get down and dirty and um, and I, I just, I didn't want to, I want you to hear the session exactly as it took place. So enjoy, uh, hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you think. So tell me what, how would you describe, how, how would you describe your platform now? Because I know what he does. And I saw, you know, the stuff you submitted for the yeah. the apprenticeship yeah. thing. But are you how are you monetizing? How are you feeding your cat with what you do? Or are you is your cat diet of nutrition? <laughs> <laughs> My cat doesn't eat much. <laughs> Sold it. <laughs> I don't believe in cats anymore. Uh, okay, so com for context, I just got started working on this a couple months ago. Okay. Um, my brother and I, two years ago, one summer had started a business and built some workshops, got lucky, did some free workshops at like Venture Cafe in Miami, um, the networking events, and got lucky on a couple of big clients and so thought we had a model that worked, right? But we really just got lucky. But we did learn a lot about creating workshops so then maybe four or five months ago, not even, probably three, four months ago, I was like, let me build some new workshops, see if I can sell them. Um, I have a lot more knowledge on how to monetize things than I've actually done, right? I understand uh, email marketing, I understand touch points, click funnels, those kinds of things. I just haven't done them because uh, I think I lack clarity. You know, the, and that's, uh, the workshop you got lucky with. What what was the workshop uh, on? It was on. So it was a top a, a broad couple of things. My my brother and I both went to a high school that was focused on twenty first century skills. He also studied over in Stanford's innovation program. So we were teaching quote unquote innovative thought systems, right? So we were teaching things like rapid prototyping, effective brainstorming. Uh, basically banking on the fact that people know you have to innovate to stay alive and no one knows what it means or how to do it. And so companies who felt desperate enough on the topic of innovation were like, okay, sure. And would be like, come do a three day workshop with us just cause we're that desperate and we'll give you 15 grand for it. Right. And so like we got lucky with a couple of them. Um, 
they're not bad workshops at all. We just didn't have a system that was going to help us predict like leads or income or any of that stuff. You know, nothing was automated about it. It was all just like well, cause good fortune. That's true for everybody. There is no system. There's right. no automation of that. There's right. We didn't know how to use the technology that was out there, position ourselves well. We didn't know much about what it looked like to be like like to to have your marketing system set up as best as possible or what they even should be. You know, mm-hmm. so it was our our strategy then was go do free workshops in networking events so people find you and then hoped we could turn them right into clients overnight, right? And it mm-hmm. worked like twice, you know? Mm-hmm. And then we went to different cities and stopped. But now, like the emails I submitted for the apprenticeship came from the research that I did on on email marketing, right? And how they're saying, you know, 80% of sales happened between the fifth and 12th touch point. You can't expect them to convert into sales right away, blah, 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 so you need have touch points with them, an irresistible offer, like those kind of things that I'm learning. So that's why when I pull people from my workshops, I start putting them through my email marketing so that they see those things, they get the strategies from me, and then every once in a while I I throw an offer in there, you know, to engage with me deeper. But I'm definitely in the beginning stages of that. I'm seeing where I need clarity and organization in my ideas and my concepts to have. I need people to know, like, what's my thing, you know, but I need to know that first, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here. <laughs> and, and take that, process all that with discernment, because I don't know who, probably Zig Ziglar or Tom Hopkins or somebody back in the 70s said, you know, the average sale is completed on the seventh time. Yeah, yeah. So there's been 50,000 sales trainers right up to Milton Olave still doing it probably yesterday, teaching that shit. And the truth is, there are people, I got today, I sold a, um, a um, home study version of the tribal event to a guy in India, okay? So I guarantee you that's a first impression thing. Somebody, yeah. he got a link somehow, read it, said, shit, I need that, and he bought it. Um, and I've had people parachute in and buy a $10,000 seminar the first time around. Right. right. Just like you did with the fifteen thousand dollar golden right. workshop. Right. Um, so there is no rule. There is no system other than, hey, and you know, which is you know the system we would all, whether it be me or Gary B or Seth Godin or uh, anybody doing something in the info entrepreneur space right now, would be saying, hey, just be putting out tons of great content. Right. And. Um, have a way that you can monetize it right and yeah. people will come in and so kind of two ways to look at it. one is we have this funnel which is free at the top yeah. and then low price seven dollars seventeen dollars ninety seven dollars you know down here is the ten thousand or twenty thousand or fifty thousand whatever and some people just come in here, and some people just come in here. But uh, you know, ultimately, you want to have a vault here. So people usually come here as the free stuff, whatever, and the price is going up, and then this is the access to you, the 
$100,000 a year mentorship program, you know, blah, blah, blah. And there still will be some people who just parachute in there, who yeah. money is not an issue. They, they, you know, they read the copy, they just like, shit, that's exactly what I was looking for. She knows what my problems are, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the whole issue with this is what I was telling him yesterday. And was telling my um, publisher the day before is Jesus fucking Christ! It's so much fucking harder to do this than it was even six months ago. Um, I made this bold statement last year to my mastermind group that I told them: This year, by the end of the year, you're going to see social marketing, social media, will have declined for the first time since the history of social media because hmm. it's just been on an exponential thing up. And I just saw all the warning things. It just, you know, there's just so much white noise, so much overload. How many fucking podcasts can you subscribe to? Yeah. Right? I subscribe to 10. I listen to one or two of them. How many email newsletters can you subscribe to? How many people can you follow on Facebook? How many people can you follow on Twitter? And then... So we can be best friends. I can follow him. He can follow me. He's still only going to get 20% of my Facebook posts because that's how the algorithms are going to work right. out. Right? right. So I'm working as hard now to sell 100 books as I used to work to sell 1,000 books. That's what I was telling the publisher. And they're like, yeah, we know. Everybody's fucking complaining. You know, yeah. do live events. And I'm like, listen, talk to the people who do live events. They're all, you know, the guy in Vegas was doing 10,000 people, he's down to 2,000. Our Jonak, a friend of ours that I do his event every year, I mean, he's like somersaulting, you know, hanging from the chandeliers to sell tickets, and it's 10 times harder. Uh, you know, I'm in the National Speakers Association. They face it with their, their own convention because now it's like, so if you rent at the marina there, the Marriott there, they'll say, great, we need, we'll do the convention, but we're going to need uh, $200,000 in food and beverage contract, and we need uh, 1,000 room nights. So four nights, you need 250 a night or whatever. So and that was their model for years. Now, of course, nobody's staying at the Marriott. They're like, well, shit, I go to Orbitz, and I got the hotel across the street for... $80 a night instead of the 150 that the room rate is for NSA, or they're at Airbnb. And um, so, I mean, people are finding out they have a $250,000 penalty for their room block because they didn't sell enough rooms. So the, the meetings and the events is a real, uh, I mean, it's a shit show right now. So people are really, <laughs> I think we're all sorting this out, and that's, you know, you've got to get people on your platform. Yeah. yeah. Whatever it is, your blog, your email list, your mobile app, um, because Facebook ain't going to do it anymore, and Twitter isn't going to do it, and, you know, so that's the yeah. dilemma we all have, and we have to be able to monetize you can't keep doing the work. Right. So the, the, the workshops that you're 
go into now? What's the theme or the topic that you're trying to do? It's a little scattered. Um, the first workshop I built a couple months ago was called The Creative Mind Quantified. I wanted to communicate how much we've downplayed creativity and creative confidence as a, a very necessary skill. And so I tried to, I guess, quantify creativity, make it a lot simpler so that I could show people in a 90 minutes, you know, one in one sitting, how, how much of the creative process they could actually do and boost their creative confidence in one sitting. That's where I started. Um, from there, I kind of realized it's, it's much bigger than that. And creativity isn't necessarily the, the massive topic I want to work with. Um, so... <laughs> I think I made it too cold. You made it too cold? Are you freezing? Yeah. Ah. Your fault. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Get it set at like 60. I'm a troublemaker. <laughs> so those workshops were, they were doing fine. And then as I kept pitching this to people saying, hey, pay me to do this. I started to realize that there's a lot more of an opportunity. And I think I was thinking too small. So what I, what it kind of transformed into was I'm, I pitched to my university that that one problem that's not being addressed is we're not working hard to create efficient ways to get people on their path faster, their passion path, their impact path, whatever, their prosperity path, whatever it may be. And uh, because of that, we have all these college kids and honestly who turn into 50, 60 year olds, you know, floating through the world with no sense of like sense of direction, sense of purpose, with all of that stuff, and and I think what we need to do, for example, like college is a great place to start it. Um, start with getting clarity on what your purpose, what what your purpose is today. What are ideas you're excited about developing? What are problems you want to be solving? changes you want to be making, things you want to be contributing, and how can I use the resources, like college is a land of resources, you know, but how can I use those resources, the classes, the clubs, the professors, whatever, to inform and actualize the bigger picture I got first, and I don't think we're doing that for people, right, and so it kind of transformed into uh, a bigger thing that I still need clarity on, you know, and I'm still needing to talk through it, but I think the best way I can summarize it is um, someone asked me, do you think having a quarter life crisis can prevent a midlife crisis? And I was like, that's a great question. So I polled everyone on my Instagram and they all said no, but I think the answer is yes. And so I started looking into crisis, crises that I've witnessed, midlife crises in people, quarter life crises I've experienced, whatever, to see if I could find a commonality between why these crises exist, you know, like what are they derived from and is it a problem that's consistent enough that I could answer it, right? And I think the answer is yes. So... Okay, so I'm going to push back on that and say okay. I hate that path because <laughs> the, the analogy to that would be, um, hey, if you got a tooth decay when you were 20, would that help you prevent it from getting tooth decay when you're 40? 
And the better question would be, hey, how do we avoid getting tooth decay? Right? So instead of trying to engineer a quarter-life crisis, <laughs> you know, let's ask the question, hey, how do we avoid the crisis? See, I think the crisis is a, an asset. That's the thing. I think the crisis well, is... No, I, I get what you're saying, which is, you know, hey, we, you know, we can get wake-up calls. We can learn from mistakes. We have a failure happen to... But we don't... Ha and I say that stuff all the time. But we also have to say, but if you could do it without having the failure... For sure. If you could learn from JoJo's failure... Okay, so he did that, and he learned that, and fucked up, and hurt him, and I could learn from his mistake, and I don't need to do that yeah. failure. Yeah. Right? That's yes, yes, which is why I think best case scenario would be I'm talking to the 17-year-olds going into college who have no framework for what they're about to do, and we can avoid it altogether by using foresight to inform your path rather than hindsight, 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 hindsight for 70 years coming. You know what I mean? And so... I think the same strategies that I could hand them that would prevent a crisis would also help the 25-year-olds who are in it navigate through it, as well as the 50-year-olds who haven't hit it yet navigate through it, or, you know, things like that, so. Right, and just being a um, money-grubbing capitalist pig, we have to realize the 50-year-old has money to hire you, the 17-year-old and the 25-year-old may not have money to hire you. That is true, except all the 17-year-olds are in one building, a university, who does have money to hire me, and want to give me money to hire me. And so their like, parents, and they also... And their parents, yeah. And okay. like, I'm thinking about this, I'm fresh out of college, you know, and I have a lot of people in my community, obviously, who are fresh out of college, and we go in lost, engage with the illusion of being found, and graduate lost, you know? And then stay terribly lost and bond with people over being lost. And so I'm like, that pains parents enough that I think they would buy a book about it uh, to give to their kid, you know? And it, there's enough people saying, I don't want to go to college or have a bad taste in their mouth after college or say college didn't prepare me. Colleges are panicking too, you know? And so I'm like... Yeah, and that's the other issue with your business model is... Now, my prediction is not that colleges will cease to exist, but that colleges will be vastly diminished and a much, much, much lower percentage of people will go to college. Because the 17-year-old kid who's amazing playing video games has a much better shot to earn $100,000 a year than the 22-year-old with an MBA degree. People recognize that now and say, well, you know, if I could just go and take a, you know, the, the, the cliche answer is learn how to code, but that's not really a smart move now because you can get coders for yeah. $3 an hour in Pakistan um, and China and, you know, the third world, so it's not really, but the idea that you could learn how to be, to think like an engineer. If you can learn to write code, you can write your own ticket. And now you no longer need college for that. There's lots of better alternatives. I agree. You could do a six month or nine month internship program, vocational thing. Yeah. So let's not build your business model on universities because that's going to be a declining 
right right foundation i mean i i agree with that sentiment of course i do wonder if there are going to be colleges that catch on to the fact that self-education is going to be a thing and figure out how to build around it i do wonder that um and put all self-education opportunities under one roof you know for people to engage with i wonder if people will catch on to that i also do think that for every i mean these aren't informed ratios you know but from what i see like every kid that has found uh, an opportunity and a freedom and meaning in video gaming and can make money off it there's a hundred kids who haven't found something that does that you know what i mean and like that might increase but i think even if they're coming out of high school right into the world or out of college right into the world or are 50 and purposeless and meaning have no meaning in their life like i don't know that we'll we'll have uh, an overall diminishing number of people who feel that problem exists in their life, you know? Well, there's going to be, at least if you take the U.S., which has a population of 330 million, whatever it is, and figure what percentage of that is kids who are not working or retired people who have stopped working, then there's probably... 260 million left who are need jobs and of those 260 million at least 50 million of their jobs will be eliminated within five years by technology so there will be a lot of people wondering <laughs> what they're going to do when they grow up um, all semi drivers they're going to be out of a job all almost mm -hmm. all almost almost all retail people are going to be out Almost all pick and pack warehouse manual labor all going to be out of a job. Almost all retail going to be out of a job. Yeah. So I mean, and 50, see, I, 60, maybe 80 million within five years. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what I don't like. That I, I mean, I know a lot of people don't like this, but I don't like that we've taught people here are the options you get to choose from. Be afraid that be afraid that they're diminishing. Like I I like. Uh, a generation mindset over like a choose you know like just choose like I, I, I like I want to teach people how to invent options not pick from them you know what I mean by getting clarity faster on the things they want to contribute the things they want to change the problems they want to solve the ideas they want to develop you know because I do think there's a huge skill set and mindset and habits and everything around um, creating the life for the results you want rather than waiting for the life for the results you want, you know? And like I, between creating and complying, like they're totally different mindsets, you know? And I just think everyone's playing on defense because they don't know the strategies not to. And I, uh, yeah, I don't know, that's pretty much where I'm at. And so where you, what was, what is or what was your next step when you were leaving town yesterday? You have a workshop set up, you're promoting right now, you have a coaching program you're trying to sell, you're trying to sell consulting, what, so, what track are you on right this instant? I'm on about five tracks moving slowly <laughs> and I don't want to do that. And so... The, the exact track I was on is come here, 
get some time and distance, spend a lot of time talking about it and thinking about it and figure out what track I want to be on. Okay, um, that's, that's, that's a good strategy, actually. Yeah, and I, of course I do want to do it all, but I want to be strategic about it so that I can grow. You know, I don't want to lay one brick and go to the next house and lay another brick and then never see a house built. You know what I mean? I don't want to do that. And so I do think if I can get enough clarity and if I can get my content really well together that I can pitch this as an orientation speaker for colleges. I mean, they are still alive, you know what I mean? And like, they're trying to, they're still alive right now. I know I, I completely agree with what you're saying, but they're alive right now and they're panicking because people aren't graduating with confidence, you know? And so I like the, I know it's one college, it's one data point, but the one that I did pitch it to was like, we're looking for a radical overhaul for our entire freshman seminar content and this looks like what we want, you know? And so that's one of how, how many colleges, I don't know. But I think there's a huge opportunity for me there, especially being young and uh, fresh out of college and knowing what college didn't do for me and that colleges want people to go there, but they would also like them to get more out of it, you know? I, I think that's a, a, sh a short-term opportunity and a long-term opportunity for me if I, if I can get it together. In the meantime, I'm, I have like a couple consulting coaching clients that again were like luck of the draw, you know? People I know who need things that I know how to do or people who love my emails and reached out and said, can I have some coaching, you know, but it's not, it's not a business model, you know, like it's, it's one-offs. Okay. Anything jump out of you? Yes. So earlier when we kind of were talking about this, a couple things, tell the thing about the buffalo. What's the analogy? Water buffalo, <laughs> when they sense a storm, they don't run away from it their instincts tell them to run towards it and through it because they'll last, the impact of it will last so much shorter, right? Rather than running away from it, knowing it'll catch up and then it'll be on top of me. That was my like analogy with uh, the crisis, right? I think midlife crisis, quarter life crisis, I think they all, uh, they're all derived from the same couple of questions. I do think that, I think people question their identity, I think they question their personal power. I think they question mostly can, how am I going to create a sustainable long-term freedom, pleasure for myself if no one else around me knows how to do it? And how am I gonna create, how am I gonna find out what means something to me and, and build a life around it, fill a life with it? I think those three or four questions are what everyone's crisis comes out of and so if I'm gonna hit that at 24 but my mom hit it at 54 because she was distracted 30 years longer than me you know then if I can teach myself and her and other people in the same problem with the same problems to answer those questions before they hit the crisis or when they hit the crisis uh, we can run through the storm you know and I do think me solving those questions at 24 like 
the tooth decay thing. I would say if I can build the habits at 24 that sustain my tooth health, I am less likely to get it at 54. You know what I mean? If I can build the mindset and the habits that prevent it right. or do the opposite, then I don't, you know, like life happens, but I don't foresee me getting tooth decay again at 54. You know what I mean? Um, that's my thought that no one, no one's teaching us people were being taught to run from crisis or respond to it, but not pursue the crisis use the strategies, answer those tough questions to get the foundation that you can then build on. You know, I don't see that happening. So that, this got me excited earlier because I can, I feel there's something in here about claiming your crisis. I don't know what it is. And maybe crisis is the wrong word because it kind of hung me up. I think it's getting him hung up on that. But I do think that that idea of like, even what you said about these industries that are going away, like, Hey, this isn't gonna happen now. Instead of these like running from that and waiting for somebody to sl- maybe let's use Hallie's creative approach to figure out how do I lean into the storm and like in ten years I'm not fucked. I'm gonna go ahead and start making changes now. So I don't know. I think um, having seen some of the work shops and work that Hallie's done too, it's like creative approach to practical problem solving. Or like I guess that's the way to say it. Because um. my thing is, I believe that the strategies that I have and can hand people, not including the ones I will build in the future, can teach people uh, what they care about, what they want to solve, what they want to contribute, change, create in two weeks' time, in three weeks' time, in a month. I believe my like the strategies I have can teach them how to turn those interests or wonders or wishes into projects that are purposeful and lean enough that they don't have to disrupt your life, but that they can take some of the significance of like the weight of your shitty life and put them there, and can convert them eventually into creative contributions and change your whole lifestyle. Like I do believe I have strategies to share that can do that that would have helped people who don't think those things exist. Anything else? Mm, um, I'll stop there. Because I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm like defending the idea we came up with. I'm curious to hear what you, where you're guiding it. Yeah, I'm not, but I'm not asking you to defend the idea. Want I know, to push I you in that direction right. doing that. I'm just one of your how you see it, how you are interpreting what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it all sounds too vague. For having like no context, mm-hmm. I would be questioning it's so vague, you know, you just want people to be happy and that's great. Like that's how I would feel if I had no context, you know. Yeah, well that's gonna be the marketing issue, whether it's the book the career, the seminar, like um, you were talking about the creative mind quantified. Well, that's a great title for a research paper for a nonprofit institute, but it's a horrible title for a seminar because nobody woke up this morning and said, you know what I need? I need my creative mind quantified. You got to say, okay, what is the benefit of having of quantifying my creativity yes. and being able to access it 
and use it to get the things I want in right. life. Right. Yeah. Which I think is what the progression that I've seen has been because your early stuff and as you said started out heavily around creativity. But Hallie has already said like I don't even like saying like working with creatives or saying creativity because people don't think they need it. People hear creativity and they're like that doesn't, doesn't apply to me. Apply I don't need it. So yeah. So, so now it's evolved into sort of the yeah the new title when I pitched it to the college the title I used was the foresight framework for happiness. Which I don't know if it's that much better. You know, I, I don't know, just because I don't know these things, but the whole idea behind that is I think we're living in a world where it's harder to be happy. From my I mean from my experience, I'm a young person, but from my experience it's getting harder to be happy. Everyone wants happiness. We're all foggy on what it means, we're foggy on what it feels like, we're foggy on how to achieve it, and I know everyone's trying to solve that problem, I'm aware. But if I look at how we're all trying to make decisions that we think add up to our happiness, what are we using to decide what decisions to make? Other people's hindsight. I want to give people a way to use, I want to give them strategies that allow them to use foresight, you know, rather than the next person's hindsight. If Rather than the next person what? The next person's hindsight. Okay. If my mom... Uh, had a great experience in a sorority, she's going to tell me to go do it because it, made, it, 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 it pr produces her subjective happiness but not mine. You know, it adds subjective meaning to her life but not mine. Mm -hmm. That's like a super obvious basic concept, but I think if we look at what decisions am I making, are you making to try and get to somewhere where I feel happy, I could lead every single one back to someone else's definition, subjective experience, someone else's hindsight told me this is what'll lead me to happiness. I don't see any way that people have their hands on strategies that allow them to use foresight. Getting to know things about themselves that allow them to predict, collect data, come to conclusions, whatever, that lead them towards uh, subjective meaning and sustainable freedom, sustainable pleasure in their life. I don't see that. But when I built that model out on paper and used it to direct myself, and it might be a self-fulfilling prophecy, it might not, but when I had a framework for these actions and these choices fit in this box and they make you feel these things. These fit in this box and make you feel these things. These things, this box is how you wanna feel and it's on the top end of two spectrums and like, uh, you know, maximum freedom Maximum pleasure or maximum pleasure maximum meaning What would it take to get there clearly something you're never do like you don't do any of and that's why you don't feel that way What is that thing? I Think I can quantify what that thing is and teach people how to do it How long would this record before it shuts off or will it just keep going? I don't know. It's a new app. It'll probably just keep going Or maybe just um every hour or 45 minutes, stop it and restart it so it's a smaller file. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so if we, you know, if we say the sandbox that you're playing in right now is preparing you for a happy life, that gives us a working definition, I think. And that would be that's a sandbox. I think if you were working with universities, you could sell to them because that's 
supposed to be what they do, which is prepare their students for life in the real world. And right now they're not doing it. And I think they know they're not doing it. And so if you could show them, hey, yeah, you give me your freshman for X amount of time, I can do that. Um, now, marketing-wise, that needs to be looked at, massage they all cry poor. It's a horrible, as a professional speaker, the, the people I know who speak to colleges and the education market in general are the lowest paid ones and they desperately want to get out of that and get in the corporate market where yeah. there's more money, higher fees. Um, but the truth is universities are not poor. They have gazillions of trillions of dollars. Yeah. But the context of how they spend it on speakers is very poverty conscious right now because to them it's just they get a rah-rah motivational speaker who's used to speaking to high school auditoriums and right. you know he, he wears a Star Wars tie and so he thinks he's cool or he wears you know polka dot stock, socks so or he wears a baseball cap backwards and so he thinks well, the, I got street cred, and I can relate yeah. to these kids, and they're all really saying, "Who's this fucking forty-five-year-old guy up there with his baseball cap on backwards?" Yes. You know, trying to be cool. Um, and then that guy graduates to the college level, and he's speaking up there, and so he gets five thousand dollars a speech, and whereas the guys talking to corporations are getting twenty-five thousand a speech. So the financial stuff needs to be looked at, but that's not the focus of where we are today or where we're going, but just know that that's something down the road that's got to be explored. Um, so, but we're saying that's the sandbox you're living in, is um, you can provide tools to prepare for a, a happy, what do we call it, a subjective, meaningful life, subjectively meaningful life, and uh, sustainable financial security and pleasure right yeah okay so then um, now translate that into what's the book that you want to write that's a great question <laughs> does that feel right preparing for everything you said yes um, yes, but I, I'm lacking a little bit of confidence in it because I'm lacking clarity in it, you know, mm -hmm. that's the thing. Okay. Because I don't know what it, like, I, I believe in, in the ideas, and I've seen them work for people, you know, I just, uh. Like knowing there's questions about the feasibility of it and that's good like I need to know that because of course they exist makes me lack a little confidence but I'm not gonna get hung up on that it does feel right I do think I do think my my ultimate goal on this topic is to give people the strategies and information they didn't have on creating sustainable pleasure and subjective meaning. Yes, I do think so. 
and it may it may not translate to financial freedom it might not you know and I'd be okay with that if it doesn't but I do want to teach people a different way to take inventory on their life and uh, invent their own understanding of what they want out of it I think I think that what's challenging me is that I don't want to say what other people are saying and I don't think I am but it's hard to communicate that if I'm not showing you an hour's worth of strategies like I do in my workshops you know because yeah. Yeah. like you've seen them and like what I'm saying now sounds like vague and basic and like it's similar to what other people are saying and like my strategies are not like what other people are saying you know I will say having seen it I have better definitely better Okay, so the but I just want to make sure because um, ten minutes ago I heard Holly saying this is the shit I know this is what I know how to do and then like two minutes ago I heard but I have a little you know hesitation can I really do that and then you said you know maybe it's because it's not financially viable but you know is that we need to know, is that something you own and you comfortable, or you're, yes. you, you don't think, you, or you have concerns that, no, maybe that's too audacious for you to attempt? No, I, I do own it, I am comfortable with it, I, I love it, honestly. I'm very passionate about it. I'm very passionate about the strategies and I'm very passionate about the ones I haven't even created yet. Very much so. And to the point where if I never did anything with it, strategically, I would still show up at every cookout and draw these charts out on the back of the plates. I would still do that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, I'm getting hung up right now on not having the exact words to translate the value of it. You know what I mean? Because yeah, but I haven't worry marketed about that. it Like yet, I said, that's you know? the marketing context. Yeah. And yeah. we don't have to deal with that. Yeah. Now, at some point, you'll have to. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. Yes. I, th I think this is what I struggle with all the time, which is the things that I say in my workshops, the content, the strategies that I have to share you know, I, they're my own inventions. And so they're not keywords or things that people are already familiar with in terms of marketing now and in the future. I think I will struggle with how do I convince people, and I know that it's all about framing, you know. How do I convince people the value of things they've never heard anything like? You know, that's, that's how do I make it familiar enough they want to be there and then change their life? You know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but with that said, I'm very confident in the concepts, I'm very confident in the strategies, both those created and not created, and I'm very confident that I can solve a very existent real problem for a lot of, especially young people, but also people who didn't hit their quarter life crisis and hit it when they're 50. Okay, all right, so now let's go back to that question. So what would be the book that you wanna write in Um, 
I don't know. Okay, so let that let that percolate. We're gonna just set that on the shelf. Yeah. We're gonna come to you, Jojo Kid. What's the book that you want to write? In this so book? before we switch gears, would it be helpful if she told you about the idea for the book that we talked about earlier, like coming in and kind of pivot from that? Well, I don't know because it seems strange to me that she didn't go there when I asked that question. Like she had already thrown it in the dustbin. So, you know, well, honestly, this was a book so I think feeling, being a bookend, I can't, I understand kind of like we were super excited about idea and then immediately it's kind of like, eh, well, what about da, 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 And then for our personality types, it's like, oh, okay. And it's a little deflating and you have to step back for a second and go, okay. Wait, wait, before you go for the so what about your personality? So you're the same personality type. <laughs> yeah. And what about your personality type does what? It just feels, I feel a little deflated. I'm honestly like going to share my idea. And I know you're going to go straight to houses, make money. And I'm going to be like, mm, well, I'm excited about the project. Maybe it doesn't, whatever. And I think that can be a little deflating. And then I also think not fully grasping or being able to like communicate this. Like I see the missing pieces and I can tell that's like kind of, frustrating or whatever but the idea she had earlier was or that we talked about earlier was framing it around like I love what you said about crisis and then like you can comply or you can create and so like here's the space like how do you create that and hinging it on crisis because that can be a lot of different things it doesn't have to be midlife or quarter life but like whatever problem you're facing or whatever here are some really some cool strategies for that and so that though we were talking to targeting a younger audience maybe with that in mind but I think still that idea it's vital it's just kind of shifting some levers maybe to say who is it focusing on I don't know the reason I say I don't know is because I want to be as confident in the book that I can pitch to you as I am in the the strategies or the content that I believe that I'm saying I'm confident okay, so in let's, you know let's kill that premise yeah which is hey I need to have a well-conceived, thought-out, structured yeah. proposal yeah, for yeah, Randy yeah. because this is no. Okay. We're gonna have our first session <laughs> is next month, so yes. this is all just bonus time. Okay. Right. Since okay. you guys were gonna be here, you yeah. bought the tickets. We thought, hey, yeah, yeah. let's just kick some stuff around. Yeah. So don't hold back because you think it isn't formulated enough or structured enough. Okay. Okay. Because there's no. You know, there's no. <laughs> penalties here there's no <laughs> bad things that can happen yeah. there's no you know what I mean yeah okay then I would say the book the clearest understanding I have of the best book that I could write right now is the book version of whatever universities would hire me to teach a book that is so clearly what you need to learn before you step into the world to frame everything you do from a lens of foresight so much that if you weren't going to a unit like that I would want every parent to want their their freshman reading this this summer before they go into college so just to assuage your fears um, two things I'll put out there number one is when you can blow up a preconceived idea a gen general consumption uh, a general conception um, that's great 
from a marketing context. Yeah. So um, the book, Create Your Crisis, or How to Create Your Crisis, could be a smash yeah. bestseller, okay? And the other thing I would say is, you know, there's a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? Have you read that? No, I've heard of it, but I have Huge incorporations. You need to read that book. What Color Is Your Parachute? It is literally, it must be at least 30 years old, maybe 40, and I think it sells like half a million copies or a million copies every single year, because every aunt and uncle in the world buys that for their nephew that's going to college or getting or graduating from college, graduating from high school or graduating from college, or both. Yeah. So that's, and I'm going to send you home with my risky book. Risky is the new safe. I was going to buy it, so that works well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't have to buy it. <laughs> He's like, actually, yeah, go buy ahead. It. <laughs> <laughs> and leave a uh, review. I need ten books. Because <laughs> uh, I actually have a chapter in there on education and the role of education, so that'll be yeah. good for you to read yeah. that chapter for sure. Because I'm, I'm very passionate about education. I had a unique educational upbringing, and. In my lifetime, I want to change a lot of things about education. My brother and I have a plan for how we're going to overthrow the education system outside the education system. I worked in it. Uh, I worked out of it. And, yeah, I, I just have a lot of my own philosophies on learning. And... I, w I would like to position... I do think college is a huge resource. I think we're using it wrong. We're teaching people to use it wrong. While it's around, I think both colleges and attendees would be getting way more out of it if we looked at it differently. Okay. And that's within the context of college now. So great, it's going away. Like, could, could she just have her own college prerequisite course? You know what I mean? Like, it's online. Maybe even if you say you get into colleges, great. It doesn't get into colleges. She's got her own thing. Colleges go away. There's still the Halley University for gifted whatever online. You know, like I think there's other kind of ways at it too. Um, and the way I see it is like, I know, I know the value of like having a niche and solving a specific problem. I know that, you know, and I see where the vagueness of this could be dangerous I do see that but I don't think the kids who graduated lost are any I don't think like the 40 year olds who are still as lost as they were when they were 17 now don't need the same information I think they need it you know I think I think until you have it you need it until you have this information or these strategies or other information or other strategies that solve the same problems, you're still in need of it, you know? So I don't think college is my only opportunity or my only market. I just think it's a super large, obvious one, you know? The other thing to explore, and again, I'm just brainstorming out loud, talking out loud, I'm not advocating for or against, but the other thing to explore is just to leave the whole university dynamic out of the equation and just deal with the equation of is there really a age gap 
in the world right now. You know, the, the news today is we have AOC and the squad versus Nancy Pelosi and the establishment, right? Um, and to me, so I'm a guy, I left the house when I was 15 years old and made my way in the world and made some great choices and made some really poor choices. And mm -hmm. Was in jail for armed robbery at 15 years old, a teenage alcoholic, teenage drug addict. But, um, you know, I figured out that, hey, I don't pay the light bill, they don't give a shit, they just cut off the light. And if I don't pay the rent, the landlord doesn't give a shit, he just puts an eviction notice on the door. And, you know, it'd just be a lot easier instead of every month waiting till the electric bill was due and then calling uh, the power company and asking for it, getting an extension for 10 days, and then 10 days later, finding somebody who will lend me the money and going to uh, Macy's in the Aventura Mall, which was a pay station for the power company, and getting in line behind the 300 other fucking morons like me who waited till the last day to pay their bill and needed to get to the front of the line, pay the bill, and then get a, a number which I would call into the power company so they didn't come mm. and turn off my power that light night. Exhausting. Yeah, when you do that every month, you kind of learn something about how to survive in the world. And I would make the argument that most people under 30 have never done that because they were raised by parents who told them they were a beautiful snowflake hmm. individual and they got a participation trophy for every sport that they did and, and they played in soccer leagues where they didn't keep score <laughs> because they didn't want to offend any kid's ego and you have all these helicopter parents hovering over their children trying to protect them from any reality in the real world and so they've grown up and they're out there as superficial, vapid uh, entities who think that well, if I could just get another 200 followers on Instagram, then I would be happy. So they don't know, they don't know how to define happiness because they don't know what it is because they've been raised in this whole fucked up culture of participation trophies. Mm -hmm. I agree. Which is so, part of her whole message. I agree, because that's the thing, like, no, there's no clarity on happiness for these people. They don't know what it would look like, but they know, well, they think they, but they, they think say, they do, but I, I still think they, I could get more followers on Instagram, but I it's could always go to empty. Ibiza, or Burning Man, then I would be happy. Or if but I could see, get the new air Exactly, Jordans. but that's my thing. Like, my mom didn't have a crisis until she was 54, right? But our version of more, more followers and Burning Man was her get a job as an attorney and get married and have kids. It's just how long can you stay distracted and numb enough until your crisis smacks you in the face and you're miserable and empty and don't know what happiness is, you know? I think the age is coming down. I think people my age are getting smacked at 24 instead of yes. 54. I think yes. they are, you yes, know? Yes, that's where I'm going with this. And also, you know, uh, both ways. That one, yes, the uh, 
you know, the joke used to be 50 is the new 40 or whatever. Now we're healthier and vibrant or whatever. But in our context now, 50, 20 is the new 50 in the context you're talking about. Yes. Which is instead of having your midlife crisis exactly. at 50, you're having it at 23 because right. you just got out, you've got an MBA, you've got $120,000 worth of student debt, and you're going to get a job that makes 40000 a year. And in addition to your student debt, you've already got a bunch of credit card debt and a car payment, and now you're thinking about getting married and having a kid. Yeah. And this debt is so onerous, and you have no viable method to make a living to that looks like it can compete with that debt. Um, but you've done everything you've been told you're supposed to do, right? You've complied, yeah. yeah. But or the opposite. I have a friend who reached out to me the other day and said, "All my he's 25. All my debts paid off. I'm making a hundred thousand dollars a year. I have a great job. I'm engaged to be married. I have a home. I'm fucking empty and miserable." It, all all ways all of us i have i have you know what i mean like it's all sides of the spectrum whether you're in debt like you're like whether you know like you're on drugs and debt all those things or you have it all perfectly together no one has taught you how to create sustainable right, pleasure here's subjective the here's, meaning here's you know? the argument i would make or the not even the argument the the observation i would yeah. make is I don't know your friend, but I'm going to say the guy who's 25 years old and has no debt and is making 100000 or whatever, he didn't develop that himself. He got it handed to him. And that's what's creating his existential crisis, his worthiness issues and imposter, oh, imposter syndrome. No, I completely agree. He didn't do what I did, which is, okay, I, I learned how to sell dope and then I took those skills from selling dope and learned how to sell seminars instead. Exactly. Right? He's, you know, he had, you know, like the people who bought my first condo in South Beach. I mean, I sold that for $800,000, right? And it was bought by a couple because the, the wives, they were newlyweds, and the wife's parents gave him that for a fucking wedding present. So they... they you spent eight hundred thousand dollars on a wedding present. Yeah. Right. No, I, I hear you. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, the kid who graduated with one hundred twenty thousand dollars of debt doesn't have a job that's doing it, doesn't have relationships, and the kid who got it all handed to him are both having a crisis over the same question, which yes. is identity, personal power, and how the heck am I gonna create? pleasure like meaning and pleasure in my life that means something and does something for me they both have the same questions with opposite circumstances you know see this is why we're recording this because this stuff is just you you gotta there's pretty cheap now transcription services where like 10 bucks you send these and they transcribe so you need to do that with this actually there's an app called voicea doug devita talked about and it transcribes it as you go that's right I forgot about that. So I could switch gears, but don't. Just keep going. But that's where creativity, that's why I got started with creativity. Because when I looked at people who had the that's highest levels of... That's not creativity. No, but here's why. When I, had, when I looked at people that had the highest levels of subjective meaning in their life, the highest levels of sustainable pleasure in their life, what I noticed about them that was different than other people was their rate of creation 
and their creative confidence. Their rate of creation, I would say, what I mean by that is what percent of total activity in their life was prompted by this is something I want to create, a result I want to create, a change I want to create, a community I want to create. They were playing on offense, right? They had vision or focus or something first and then got resourceful and made something happen. And their creative confidence, which is I know what I want to create and I have the confidence I can do it. That's what was different about it. So that's why creative confidence to me, I, I think we have an issue with creativity and having pitched it to people as it, it only is Pinterest projects and purple hair and paint and sip. You know, it's not creation as a skill. That's the problem that I thought I wanted to tackle that I don't, is changing everyone's mind about how to define creativity because I think it's an uphill battle that won't work, you know? But I do think people don't know how to answer those questions. They don't know how to gauge or grow their personal power at all. They don't know how to do it overnight, especially, you know what I mean? And they don't know how to create sustainable pleasure or subjective meaning, but those are all things I think I can teach people how to do, you know? And I think yeah, it can I solve a lot. I'm going to push back. I don't, I don't think creativity is even relevant to that discussion. Um, I think that's a assumption you're making because of a small sample of people who seem to have good creative skills, who have actualized, have created self-actualization, or it seems they're happy and they found meaning and they found uh, spiritual sustenance. Um, but I... I think I would argue that it, it isn't their creativity skills, it's that they actually have critical thinking skills and they employ them. And the far more intriguing question to me is, you're how old? 24. Okay, so the far more intriguing question to me is, how in the fuck did <laughs> Hallie get so self-aware so intuitive, so perceptive, and so articulate and confident at 24 years old. And that question might lead to the book that every fucking graduate needs to get. So what is... What is the answer? Can I phone a friend? <laughs> I mean, um, right? I mean, have you ever talked to a 24 year old? I think I literally just on the way here said to her what you just said. I was like, not to flatter you, but just you facts, like, dude. Like, I wish at 24, I don't know what I was doing at 24, but I wish I had had that level of self awareness and like. I wasn't that at 44. Yeah. And I'm a pretty smart fucking guy. I'm a you're genius. You're smart, yeah, you're smart. <laughs> But I wasn't there at 44 where you are at 24. Tell, I don't know how much, tell them a little of your black background, I guess. Like, some of the stuff you worked on, I don't know. Um, I gotta pee while you're doing that. Okay. That's a, it's a good question. And I'm trying to pinpoint like the, the answer or answers. I'll say this, I was raised one of six kids, right in the middle, in a home daycare. So I was socialized your very fast. Was My mother a ran a home center, daycare there were other kids out of who were our there. house. Yes. Okay. So I was socialized very quickly. Mm -hmm. My mom was trained in 
one thing that she's like superior at is teaching adult level concepts to children. I mean, she would have parents come all the time and say, my child addressed my husband and I regarding this specific concept and how the, how does my four year old understand this better than us? We're adults, you know? So I think I inherited a lot of that. I gained a huge appreciation for simplifying. Uh, simplifying things so that I could make advanced concepts and strategies and information accessible to people. That's something I'm just really passionate about. I've always been passionate about communication. I, I remember when I was like 12, people saying that I should write Hallmark cards because like the birthday cards I wrote them were like the most touching things they've read and I'm just like a 12 year old, you know? Um, I think, I don't know. I think my parents just really did a really good job of fostering my curiosity big time, big time. Like I, I remember being like seven years old and learning about buying in bulk and profit margins and all these things. And I would run with them and they like, they fostered my curiosity very, just very well, very well. Curiosity is super. Yeah, curiosity and critical thinking. They did not help me solve issues ever, ever. So, oh, you need to vacuum the living room, but the vacuum's not working. You should probably unplug it and take it apart and figure out why not. <laughs> you know, like things like that, that, I, I, I don't know. That's how, that's just how I was as a child. And then in high school, I was in a pilot program for public education that was focused on 21st century skills team-based learning, logic-based learning. Everything we did started with a driving okay. question. So, so repeat that again, because I don't have the transcript in front of me. A 21st century learning. 21st century skills. Skills. It was a pilot program from the New York State Education to okay. see if we could build a new public school model for education. Everything was 21st century skills-based. So we were not, you get an A in math. We, every class was measured on learning outcomes that were considered the top 21st century skills. Communication, collaboration, innovation, information literacy, things like that. Information. Communication, collaboration, what else? Innovation. Innovation. Information literacy. Information uh, I don't, there were literacy. seven. I don't remember what the other three were, mm -hmm. but information literacy is the one I stood out for. Though they defined it as like knowing what information matters and what doesn't, how to organize it to convey ideas, how, like just being fluent in information, knowing how to put things together, pick things out, leave things out, add things in, like that's the skill that I always scored the highest in, you know? The project-based learning. See, and this is what I'm telling my coaching group all the time, that to be a thought leader is, you know, anybody can become an expert. Yeah. Earl Nightingale said in 1976, if you study something 30 minutes a day within whatever time, you're now the world's expert. We got a gazillion experts. Yeah. We don't need any more experts. There's, right. We're information overload. Right. What makes you a thought leader is your ability to um, interpret information. Yeah. And that's the, what do you call it? Information, information literacy. literacy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that's my favorite thing about myself. That's my favorite skill is the way I play with concepts and communicate them and pick them apart and put them together. And the project-based learning in high school grew that in me a lot because everything started with a driving question that was not answered by people on the face of the earth. So for example, one of the projects I did in ninth grade, the driving question was, are humans still evolving? There's not an answer. There's not an answer. And it started with a driving question and it was all, what information do you need? What resources do you need? What questions do you need to ask? It taught me how to question things. It taught me how to answer things. It taught me how to move ideas around and put them together to be convincing and compelling and all of those things. And I guess just enough repetition of it, enough, I did way more of that than any other kid who was graduating from 12th grade. Why just do you say there's not an answer to the question, is humanity still evolving? Are humans still evolving? Um, there's, not, there's not a right answer, I guess. There's not like a, I mean, we didn't do anything not, I mean, where you could Google the answer. There's not a definitive answer. There are, people's in, there are people's ideas of yes or no and here's why out there, but they need to be assessed for credibility. They can oh, be so rebuttaled. You're saying they there's can be, answers, but it's not a quantifiable mathematical formula or, or yes. Uh, I can yeah. Like one of the one of the one of the papers we had to write is does technology equal progress? Yes or no? Right? Like I can find papers out there that say yes and papers that say no and copy them. You know what I mean? But it taught me to think about things. I mean, that it conditioned me to be thinking forward, not thinking around or thinking backward or just thinking sideways, you know what I mean? So probably the fact that I spent hours and hours and years and years doing that as a child without understanding the importance of it. Like, I didn't understand what they were having me do, but I was doing it, you know? It pushed me to go into college and ask different questions and just use college differently than everyone else. I mean, I stood out for sure. I did everything differently, but it's ingrained so in me. So, Jojo, here's the question. If she wrote a book on how she became her at 24, or you wrote a book on how she became her at 24, or anyone else wrote a book on how she became her at 24, what would that book be? What would the title of that book be? What would the benefit or the theme of that book be? Mm. So these are just coffee beans covered with chocolate, and you just chew them you to them. get caffeine. Yeah. Ugh. <clears throat> oh my gosh. Um. I don't know having this part of the back room, but I think. I think being, I don't know, I'll just talk through it, but being willing to question things and... No, you're trying to describe how she did it. Okay. I don't want that. I want to know, how would we sell that book? 
what would the benefit of that book be, the theme of that book, the title of that book? I don't know. I mean, I have an idea. Which is? I know one thing people always talk about is, you know, oh, a smart man learns from his own mistakes, a wise man learns from the next guys, and people are pitching, coaching with them in their online courses as I can accelerate your learning curve, right? So, like, you could even position it around, like, how to be at 24 who the smartest guy was at 54, you know? I'm not, not that that's a great title, but like shave 30 years off your social, emotional, mental development. Yes, yes, yes. Very good, very good. Very A plus. <laughs> Maybe A minus, but. I'm gonna make this a fucking podcast and it's gonna be worse than Tim Ferriss's and Joe Rogan's. And by worse, I mean even better than because Tim, my favorite podcast is Tim Ferriss because he just gets these people from all these eclectic things, martial artists and mm -hmm. engineers and scientists and elite athletes and programmers and, and you never, and he doesn't know, they don't know where the discussion's gonna go, right? So it starts with how they started up their tech company, but then it ends up being about um, how they found the perfect leadership team or their perfect partners or how do how they do peak performance and what their daily habits are or what caused them their best relationship breakthrough. Um, and so it requires, for you guys listening to this, This is not the podcast of here's the seven steps to success for 1995 ebook. Mm -hmm. This is, hey, listen to this, eavesdrop in on this conversation and do the critical thinking required on how you extrapolate this in your own life for your own projects that you're working on yeah. right now. That's why the idea of quantifying is so attractive to me. That's why it's so attractive to me because I, I want to extract. Wait, is this still recording? What are you doing? Yeah, I'm just opening a transcriber as well. Oh, okay. Because that's what I see as my value to offer people. I can extrapolate so you don't have to, you know? I can extrapolate and turn it into strategies frameworks, structures that you can plug things in and repeat, 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 practice, 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 or whatever, so that you don't have to just listen to me talk and figure out how to do all, like I wanna be who I am, know what I know, continue learning, extrapolate it, turn it into strategies, and sell them to you, or give them to you. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to do it, hopefully you do, but, like, I do a lot of research, I listen to what a lot of people say. I read a lot of books. I have a, f uh, a feeling for like how people teach other people to do things. And I think 
I don't know. Like, let me give you an example. Do you know the Green New Deal? Mm-hmm. Okay. Ocasio-Cortez. And see, that's why I, all I, of them. It's funny that you're going to that, and that's why I said I brought her up earlier versus Pelosi, because I see you, I saw you as the AOC of the university model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You got all these uh, conservative, traditional university heads who, yeah. um, and then here's this 24-year-old yeah. punk who's coming up and saying, you know, that whole fucking model is really yeah. screwed up. There's be a lot better way to learn. Yeah. Um, but so see, I, I actually don't like what she's doing. I like know, what she's campaigning for, but I don't think it's strategic. Here's my thing. It's not strategic. Right. I think... And she doesn't care, though. No, no, no. Exactly. But she's saying, this is more important than your fucking strategy. This is more important than your political process. She's naive. <laughs> she's... Um, idealistic she's got some ideas that are impossible but that's what the world needs is you know there's a I don't remember it was uh, Churchill or who who said you know if you're if you're not a socialist or communist when you're young you have no heart oh yeah and if you but if you're still a, a socialist or a communist when you're older, then you have no brain. And I'm paraphrasing it, but that's and that's what what I tried to tell the Clinton campaign in 2016 when they were going against Bernie, and he was free college, free whatever. And, and I remember a debate where they brought up, uh, you know, one of the girls. It was like a, a, a college girl um, was asking a question of Hillary in the debate with Bernie. And so, and she was a Bernie supporter. So the question came up, you know, how is this woman not supporting the first woman who would be the president of the United States? And she was talking about, you know, no, no college debt and free healthcare and free college and all the socialistic stuff that Bernie wanted to do and still wants to do again four years yeah. later. Yeah. And I, what I was trying to tell the campaign is, what, the, the way Hillary has to answer that question when they say, Hillary, why do all these young, idealistic women who should be supporting you, why are they supporting Bernie? And what I told them is, her answer needs to be, I love the fact that they're supporting Bernie because that's what young people are supposed to be, idealistic, yeah. right? So they want, yes, free healthcare, free prescriptions, free college, Free HBO and Showtime. But I'm a 70-year-old woman who's been in the political game for 50 years, and I know what's realistic and possible. And so I love the fact that they're supporting Bernie and these ideas, but my job is to be the grown-up at the table. And if she would have answered that, it would have cut the legs out from Bernie right at the first primary. Agreed. And she'd be in the position yeah, she needed yeah, to be in, right? Yeah. And see, my thing with her is, and it's not just her, I think everyone who's pushing the Green New Deal is missing a huge piece here. And I think, I agree with a lot of the, the things they want to see happen. Yeah, the objectives are but perfect. But here's my thing. Why, I don't see why we would spend a single dollar trying to change people's minds 
about going vegan, about getting solar panels. You can't spend enough money to change everyone's mind to fix climate, right? To fix uh, environmental changes that are happening that are negative. What you can bank on every day is that people will make the best decision for them, right? So why spend a single dollar on a rally to go talk to people whose minds you will not change when you could spend all of those dollars figuring out how to make a solution, how to make veganism the better option for people. Make it the cheapest, make it the most accessible, how to make green energy the cheapest, the most accessible, and put the other companies out. I just don't see, like strategically, I don't understand, like path of least resistance makes the most sense to me strategically in this case. Because do you care if people agree with green principles as long as they're practicing them? No one cares. Like, I, we don't care if you don't, like, no, they don't care. You know what I mean? So why are you trying to change people's minds rather than just change their behaviors because they add up to the result you're looking for? You know what I mean? So You see why we need this book? Because a 24-year-old is not supposed to feel that way. Because mm -hmm. she has the idealism of Bernie but the common sense of Hillary. Can we put that on the book jacket? <laughs> you yeah, want a record view? <laughs> no, but see that—that's like a perfect parallel for what I'm thinking. And when I see the way people are trying to teach other people to create the results they created, you're not—you're like the gap between where they're at and where you want them to begin practicing things are way too big. You know, like one thing that i always use in my strategies i can always bank on my mind coming to logical conclusions based on the data i have it makes sense that if i never finish anything i collect if i never finish anything i've collected enough data to convince me that i am not a finisher right i don't need you to change tons of things about yourself i need you to add in tiny little things like if you have one task you want to finish break it up into 100 tasks you've just collected 10, 100 data points that tells your mind, I'm a finisher, you can come to a logical conclusion that's different about yourself, change your whole self-image with very little resistance because I'm not asking you, like I'm banking on the fact that you will always come to a logical conclusion based on data. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> why are we asking people to meditate on their balcony for an hour? No one's, like, one out of a hundred people are going to get results that way. You know what I mean? And I'm like, Right, so here's where I'm going to throw a curveball to you because I'm going to say most people will not base, will not reach a logical conclusion based on the data because most people will not interpret the data correctly. I think it's a subconscious. You don't even have to be aware of it. Logical conclusion. Like people think they're losers because they keep losing. They don't have to be aware that anything that's happening. You know what I mean? But you think, I, I believe that people will come to conclusions grounded in data that they collect even if they're not aware they're collecting it. Right, but I'm time. saying they get flawed conclusions, right? Yes. If you look at any Trump supporter right now, or in the election, right, last, so he said, I'm against immigrants and bringing immigrants here, and, but of course that's the basis of his business. I'm self-funding my campaign, but of course he wasn't self-funding his campaign. It was, in other words, he made a lot of promises that were completely 180 degrees the opposite, but people didn't make their decisions based on logic, they based them on emotion. Right, but that's an external thing. I'm saying, sorry, in yeah. regards to the questions I say they're asking why they're having crises, right? 
But they're not I, asking those questions. Here, no, let I me know what I'm saying. They've okay. created their own crisis. I'm going to go back to what we started earlier. They, in effect, have, I think I'm a loser because I always lose. Hallie's saying, but with my proven strategies, I can help you realize you'll always lose because of X, Y, and Z. Therefore, you're not a loser. And if you do X, Y, and Z, you won't lose anymore. Right? Basically, like, I don't think people are... Any dis, any conclusion about you, you, the next thing, this person, anything external, I don't think people are logical beings for one second. About self-image, about personal power, about my ability to create pleasure, my ability to create meaning for myself, in those situations, I think you will always conclude things about who you are and what you can do based on the data you've collected. If you think... Based on how you interpret yes. the data you've collected. Correct. But what I'm saying is, it's heavier lifting to teach someone to interpret differently than to just collect different data that will logically change your mind about yourself. That's what I'm saying. Both are valid. But yeah, I, so you're saying you're gonna you're gonna try to provide them a hack. Yes, that hacks. Will, That's what I want that to do. will yes. negate their <laughs> self-destructive tendency to make irrational decisions based on irrational beliefs. Correct. I want to. I want to do it efficient, more efficiently, with less resistance. I want to give you hacks to fix your motivation, to fix your self-image, to fix everything. Because I want to do it smarter and more efficiently and more effectively than anyone said you could. I don't think these have to be crazy uphill. I think you can create these results with strategy. That's more innovative. Like innovative thought systems. Honestly, that's what you know. That's where it started. That's where it ends. Like hacks. Exactly. So it's a critical thinker helping non-critical thinkers think critically through hacks. Through frameworks and structures them. that will expedite your whole fucking right. process, yeah. Because we know most people are not critical thinkers, but here I'm going to make it a little easier for you. A lot easier, yeah. A lot easier, America. <laughs> America, okay, so don't let me The future is female! <laughs> so... Uh. Okay. We know exactly the kind of book that we want Hallie to write. Woo! So we're going to just put that on the shelf for the moment. Okay. And we're going to go over to JoJo. Let me start this over. You're good? You're good? I have two ideas. Um, and I think I'll start with the title of it. Because that's kind of how they came to me. Um, so one is called Exploration Dating. And it's around... And these are not related to me, by the way. Uh, but it's around, I guess you're improve understanding relationships, like improving your relationship with yourself and therefore having a better relationship with other people in a way. But, um, man, I, I explained it so much better earlier. But, <laughs> I um, always said this was going to happen. <laughs> I know. And, and did, did I get this correct? The title was Exploration Dating. Dating, yeah. It's As genius. In, Date expiration dates in the yogurt and how it applies to humans, or dating as in terms of going on dates. So, in here's how it kind of came to me. The, like, and, and I'm still refining the idea, so that's this will be good, like for clarity. So, like, initially, I was like, this was a, years ago. I was like, oh, I don't date at expiration date because at some point I'll say, oh, that's a red flag, like. This will be over soon, whatever, let's say. Um, and I'm like, what the fuck? Why do I do that? Like, whatever. And so I guess kind of applying critical thinking in that way too. But 
I don't know, I was like, who, who wants to read about that or what is that? It's not just a bunch of like dating stories, but it's more about the idea that we all have an expiration date on our lives, you know, so we should be intentional with the way we live. And then also to borrow a quote from RuPaul, like if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you gonna love anybody else? And then with the zeitgeist of, you know, monogamy, like what is it? Why do half of all marriages end in divorce? What is polyamory? Like I have questions around a lot of those things anyway, um, and they're very topical at the moment. And so in that, it's a kind of expression dating has like many meanings, which I think is good, but it's really kind of looking at it going like, I guess setting boundaries, like you mentioned earlier, like going into relationships, setting boundaries and like having expectations and value in yourself and know what you want and what you don't is a part of it. Um, the, being willing to walk away from, and not just dating, but relationships in general, things that have that are no longer serving you or are bad for you and not just kind of mindlessly or from comfort or for whatever many reasons people stay in bad relationships or get in bad relationships, kind of exploring those topics. And it's gonna be a lot of research too, which uh, is part of what I'm excited about. It's a really, that's kind of the high level, but it's really about understanding the types of relationships we have with ourselves and other people and like, Themes about why they work or why they don't or, or whatever. So just to um, toss this in for I don't know what to, to stimulate the process. As soon as you, as I hear an, a potential author or an author tell me it's going to involve lots of research, I get nervous because now I say, okay, now we're going to have a really boring textbook. But you've met me, so you know I'm not boring. <laughs> now I get that. Yeah. And well, I let guess. Let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. So, I mean, because my default setting is if you can't write a book, if you can't channel a book in two weeks, you're not qualified to write it. Now, I do not channel books in two weeks anymore with the books I'm writing. This last one was 70,000 words, but I channeled it in six weeks or five weeks um, once I really got the, the theme and the subject and got in the flow um, because my thing is yes there are books that are covered with that are littered with footnotes and each footnote has a research study to back it up and imperative imperative is that the right word I'm looking for? No. Empirical. Empirical evidence um, but nobody only professors read those kind of books. The, the kind of books people really buy open and read to the end are ones where people tell their truth as only they know it, the book that only they could write. Um, so I just put that in as a cautionary note as you debate the, the, this idea of the amount of research that yeah. it yeah, totally valid and good call out. So the book Quiet, Introverts in an Extrovert World or whatever, have you read that? No. Mm, I wish you had because that's what oh, I should. How did I not read that book? Have you read yeah. the originals? No. Have you read the originals? No. I was going to say, that's Adam Grant, the one I told you yeah. about, uses 
data and like studies brilliantly doesn't distract from it at all. So to appease your concerns or whatever, no, um, I don't necessarily even, when I say do the research, it's for my own understanding and to satiate my own curiosities, but also because I believe, I want this to be more than just my stories. Like I want it, and I may not cite every source, but I want to at least understand and I don't feel like I'm qualified necessarily to speak to the science or reasons behind why people make the choices they do unless I actually look into that a little more, you know? Especially when the time comes to like, I don't know, dating and things like, and maybe research is, you know, what does Grindr look like here compared to Miami? I don't know. You know what I mean? When I say research, it means kind of, I don't, it's not, I don't want it just to be a book of like dates I've been on or relationships I've had or experiences or whatever, you know? And so for the podcast, Grindr is a gay dating or hookup app. So, okay. So this, the, the, um, the scary sentence I heard so far was, well, I have actually two book ideas. Yeah. Um, here's one. Um, so that's a very, you know, that's a very personal, passionate subject you're proposing for a book that the kind that usually when someone has that kind of subject, they know that's the book they want to write or need to write or probably the book they know they need and want to write. Um, they don't have a second one competing for their love. What, well, is, what is the scenario with you on the second one here? Well, ENFPs have a lot of love to give, so that would explain. The, no. What did you call it? ENFPs. ENFPs. Oh, okay. Myers-Briggs. Like, the Myers-Briggs. E-N- what is the initial? It's my favorite language. ENFP. Okay, ENFP. For yeah. you guys listening on the Myers break test. We're called the campaigners. <laughs> so we naturally find things to be excited about, translate our excitement into your language so you can be excited too, and then find a new thing. That's why he has so many ideas. <laughs> Which is why when somebody's not on board for idea right away, it's like, oh shit, let me go regroup and figure out how to pitch this better. On Which we both know yeah. is not a necessarily a great quality to have. So we're working on it. But well, it's a great quality to have, but it's one that can be abused and and be counter um, productive. Yes. But there are when times a, where it's a, an amazing, great quality yes. to have. But when it's connected to our self-esteem, it becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but this is a safe space, so. And I, like, I know, like, I'm, I, these ideas, like, I feel like these, this book, I feel like it'd be more than one, is what I'm meant to be, like, writing and understanding and sharing because I'm, like, nervous about Telling you about it because I'm like, Ugh. it's the not the one you just told me, or the that next and this one, one which is very to. related. So that's why there's two because the idea of expiration dating has kind of been kicked around and evolved in my mind for years. Um, but I'm like, what is the bigger value that that's going to offer other than just like, oh, that's cute. Let me, I can spin some cute articles out of that idea or whatever. But so as I explained it today, I think there's now diving into sort of the relationship with ourselves and how that affects others that sort of idea gives it more value so parallel recently i had a newer idea or interest around just sex and shame in general and again with 
the you know transgender and gender fluidity being talked about more and more and like I just want to understand that and monogamy versus polyamory and all these things so the idea was like okay I'm gonna write the book on sex which is obviously probably just way too big and broad but that's why I thought expiration dating may be a little more like digestible why do you think sex is too big and broad and maybe not but I because I don't know where I would focus in on it necessarily and like sex is like it's just such a it could include so much but like as I started thinking through it and relationships couldn't include so much yeah I mean and how can you separate sex and relationships so why I'm saying all this is because I'm 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 hearing one book here okay that you're dividing into two what I think is probably one okay Mm -hmm. all right so what I guess the idea behind the this book will be called Mind Fucked, and it's like our how we are I guess taught to believe or how we are shamed how shame is built into sex somehow or whatever like and how that looks in different cultures. So really, it's kind of understanding it because I don't think we're really taught about sex and how do people learn about sex? It's from their friends. I don't even want to know how kids learn about sex these days. But like, it's, you know, you learn it from your friends. You learn it from porn, which is probably the worst possible way to learn it. And so I, and maybe it's just living in Miami versus Nashville, but I hear more conversations sort of being had around sex, but not really openly, because people are like, like, or whatever, for a lot of reasons. And the fact that there's a lot of ways to make money around sex, but you can't make money with sex, like having sex, right? Sex work, prostitution is illegal, but like you could be a sex therapist, you can be a pill pusher and give people Viagra, you can be a stripper, you can be on and on and on. You can be, can be, in air quotes, a human trafficker. There's people who are literally sex slaves and like, there's so much to talk about, so I'm like, that's why I thought maybe this is too much for a book. But I just, I would like to look at kind of a holistic picture of like, what sex, like what do we know about it? What are we taught? In what ways is it used to control us? Because I think that's probably a huge part of the conversation. You learn about what you aren't supposed to do sexually in church, from the government, like whatever. and in other cultures, other ways, but you know, who is telling us like sex is okay, and or here's how to do it? Like, you know what I'm saying? So exploring kind of all that. Yeah. So, um, um, I for sure, I, I I'm definitely believing more by the moment that this is one book, not two. Um, That's I think. Just as sexual energy drives human behavior, let me correct that, just as sexual energy drives all animalistic Mm. behavior for all animals, all species, um, I I believe that sex and sexuality drive the bus in terms of relationships as well. So, you know, I think it's impossible to write a relevant book about relationships hmm. that doesn't deal with sex. Because sure. at least what I would, for my personal prejudice, my personal opinion, 
what I would describe as truly enhancing, rewarding, functional, healthy relationships. Because I, I know there are people that have relationships without sex because, or they, um, you know, their, their sexual relationship is one night a week, missionary position with the lights off because they do think it's dirty because that was their religious upbringing and they're the, but you cannot quash the sexual energy in an animal because it, event, it always comes out. Um, so maybe they allow it to come out with once a week with the missionary position in the dark or they are acting out and they're living these um, as so many all these televangelist preachers and whatever who are you know on TV talking about abstinence and marriage and then they've got hookers on the side and you know uh, houseboys on the side and you know whatever the case may be um, because it's and I wrote a blog about my career as a sex worker which we were talking about Jojo and I was Jojo was at my last tribal event and I mm -hmm. that came up and even in that room of some really enlightened people who all love me and adore me was like wow did why do you why do you have to talk about that? Or why did you <laughs> of all the shit that? you've ever said, too, right? Like, you're yeah. open about everything. And that was just like, oh. And I was, that actually was surprising to me. I looked around like, really? Y'all didn't have sex? Like, what? Yeah. So great thing. Right. So, and when I say, you know, because somebody, I, you know, I was in this conversation with someone and they said, but he was dating uh a girl, but the girl was actually a guy, or it was a guy who was actually a girl, whatever it was. And so my response was, so what? What's wrong with that? And they were just shell-shocked. They didn't know how to answer that question because there was supposed to be something wrong with that. If you remember, was one of, was it uh, Hugh Grant was the one who was found with a hooker in the car and it was a transsexual or transgender? I don't know. Somebody did, one of the, some actor, you know, maybe like 10 years ago or something. And my whole question was, well, what does that have to do with it? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I'll, I might as well, since I'm open book about everything, say I don't have any problem with that and I have had sex with non-binary people and transgender people and she males and you know to me I just I, I don't have any issues with it because I obviously have a very liberated view of that but I know that that to most people is just shocking and earth-shattering and um, but that's the stuff that great books are made of just at the time we're recording this, this is going to be, uh, and we have a term for you guys who are overseas in America, we call the term inside baseball, which is inside information about something that most of the general public wouldn't understand. Like uh, if you're talking about politics and focus groups and polls and um, policy issues, that's inside baseball, right? The average voter doesn't care about all that stuff. They just want to know who's going to give me my free Medicare and my free HBO and my free prescriptions. 
so this is actually inside baseball about baseball because there was a guy who just died like three days ago at the time we're recording this a guy named Jim Bowden who was a, uh, a pitcher a baseball pitcher for the New York Yankees and he wrote a book called Ball Four which I read when I was like 15 years old it's one of the greatest baseball books ever written and he was a pariah from the baseball industry after that book came out because he told the what today we would just think is the most uncontroversial, unshocking, blase stuff, but he talked about it at that time. This was scandalous stuff. And they just basically, you know, it took years before he was, he was probably in his 70s before like baseball like accepted him back into the club and forgave him for writing this book, telling the truth about what's real, right? And that's how I feel about this sex book with you, is that's the book people have to read. That's the book we all have to write, is the book that talks about the elephant in the room, that talks about the questions that people are afraid to bring up in polite company and mm -hmm. um, you know yeah. are afraid to deal with. Mm -hmm. You know what feels like a link between the two is the concept of autonomy. Right, because I don't think most of us have that much genuine autonomy in the choices we're making around sex or relationships because of how much we've been conditioned, you know? All like you're saying, mind fucked, right? Like uh, the thought systems that have been shoved down your throat or given to you, some of which, maybe even most of which are all of which you're so blind to, you know? So I'm thinking like, until you can get objective enough to understand that those were the your subjective teachings, you know, you can't really make autonomy because you're following rules that were given to you, you know? So like with sex education, which is another thing you're passionate about, with education on the topic of sex, on the topic of relationships, people are gonna be able to look more objectively at what was taught to them, pick through it, and use autonomy in both their relationships and their sex. And I know like with their sex life and with um, expiration dating, we were talking about like boundaries and how people aren't setting boundaries because they don't know what they should be. They don't know where or how they can exist. They don't know where they should come from, how they should develop them, when they should implement them, when to use them. Like they just don't know, you know what I mean? And it's because they were handed a list of boundaries by the church or by the government or their parents or whatever. You know what I mean? They're not theirs. They didn't choose them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So autonomy, like genuine, informed autonomy is something I don't think most people have. Mm -hmm. But like education and, and working through those things and asking yourself the right questions and coming to those decisions, like that's something that, you know, like you do for yourself and it makes a difference, you know, and like you'd probably want to see other people doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think probably why a lot of this comes up for me, for me is like I don't know just in like this is an unexpected outcome I think of moving to Miami like I moved to Miami to like have more diversity of everything around me and thought included and I think I mean I don't know just hearing people's like you know open relationships especially in the gay community like oh open relationships and then here yeah, people that don't really want to talk about it if they're in them they don't want to be open about it or if they are people assume like okay it's a means to an end they'll be that'll be over in three months or and i'm like 
is that true? Or do some people act, does this work for some people? Like whatever. So kind of exploring those topics and at least maybe to your point, like just sharing this holistic view of like, there's a lot of ways to go about this. Like just like with the religion, you know? So like, let's look at it all and kind of get, step back and understand like, okay, like it's more than just this little set of vague rules I have been handed at some point in my life. Or it's more than the, you know, like even in, like you know, if you're a top or a bottom, that means this or that. It's mask for mask. It's no fats, no fins, no Asians in your profile. Like why do we feel like it's okay to say that? Why do we feel like those things are inherently bad? Um, and, and how many people actually feel that way? Because that's what we're talking about, but maybe only one person out of 50 feels that way, but that's what gets picked up and run with. So I think I have a lot of questions around it and some insights, but, um, yeah. But I think the research you want to do is almost more qualitative. It's almost like I want to represent multiple perspectives, including the one I can't possibly have, Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. That's the kind of research you want to do, right? Not like facts and figures and details and data. It's more like it's qualitative information. Right. Exactly. Right. Like, I don't know what they, what is the, you know, kind of, what are the people taught about sex in Canada versus like Iran? I have no idea. I would have to look into that. It may never make it into the book. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So yes, to your point. Or different religions because like you couldn't possibly represent the, per- the perspective of five of them. Yes. You know? What's, yeah, for sure. Right, but what's going to make it an amazing book is, again, not the research, right. but the applicability to the real world problems that the readers have. And so Hallie had mentioned autonomy. Well, that's where I go always on this because I wrote another book called Why You're Dumb, Sick, and Broke and How to Get Smart, Healthy, and Rich. Mm-hmm. And that entire book is about the programming we get, the limiting beliefs yeah. that we get, the mind viruses, that uh, the memes, because people think meme is a slide on Instagram. No, that they hijack the meme. The real meaning of the word meme comes from the science of memetics. Really? Developed by Dr. Uh, Richard Dawkins Sick. in his book, The Selfish Gene. And he talks about a meme as a mind virus which, which infects the host and causes you to replicate the, and parasitizes the host so you replicate the virus. And of course there's just all sorts of science evidence of this now that it's become a thing that Daniel Dennett and, um, and Shermer and Dawkins and brilliant people have now studied. So it's a, <clears throat> whether it's a simple meme like shaky, shaky, shaky song from Daddy Yankee, you hear that, it's infected, it's in your head, you hum it in the elevator, you now, the other four people in the elevator have that earworm of that song mm-hmm. and you Cause you've you know become the parasite who has infected the three other parasites and they're going to replicate the virus, or it's Barack Obama with the meme "Yes, we can," or Nike with "Just do it," right? So um, the mind that book was all about the mind viruses of money is bad, rich people are evil, it's spiritual to be poor, you can't be a good parent if you want to make money. 
right? And the memes around sex, the mind viruses around sex, mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, why, and this whole question of monogamy, there's all sorts of science that shows that the human actually might not be a monogamous animal, but a serially monogamous animal, right. meaning that they're in a monogamous relationship for a period of years, and then it it's expires. over. And then they go, yeah, the expiration date. Yeah. And then they go to the other monogamous. <laughs> and by the way, since we're just putting all this out there and I'm scandalizing and shocking all of my listeners who are regular podcast listeners, I have a relationship with two men who I meet with for uh, sexual encounters on a regular basis who are a married couple huh. who have been together for 24 years. In a you meet them separately or together? Those, they're together for 24 years Good and question. been married for, I don't know how long, 15 or 20 or whatever. And then um, I'm the third partner okay. in the relationship, it's just sexual, not emotional. And they obviously didn't break up after three months because they're still there 24 yeah. years later. That's so, been going on for 24 years? Uh, they've been Marathon. together for How long has years. that been I've been with them for a couple of years. Okay. Wow. Do you consider yourself a thruple? A thruple? I don't know. What is a thruple? Buy the book and find out. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, would you say... And what is it that I'm like, who fucking knows? Right. But well, I guess my question is, do you how would you do you classify or label that relationship with them as something like how do you describe no, it? No, that, that's a for me and for them, it's a sexual relationship. Okay. I have been in a a a emotional relationship in a threesome once before, and that was probably lasted about nine months and it did have some of the things you hear happen with jealousy with one person when the other two seemed to be more connected or whatever there were some of those issues to work through but I would argue that there's issues like that to work through with every relationship including yeah. a, a man woman in a monogamous you know fundamentalist Christian relationship marriage right yeah um, and so for me I, you know my thing is I have you know, been with women, I've been with men, I've been with in the middle, you know, I've been, and and it's just a fascinating subject because I'm in a gay softball league and maybe when I joined it, there was a shortstop on one of the teams who was a man transitioning to a woman. So he was in the process of that. He was going through the hormonal therapies he still had a penis, but he had developed breasts, he had long hair, he didn't grow a beard anymore, he was going through, and then he was going to have the operation. And so he was in some mental health counseling process that you go through with that. And he met a, another person who was a man transitioning to a woman and they fell in love, mm. and they lived happily ever after. So he went from a uh, male homosexual to a lesbian. <laughs> right? Fascinating, yeah. And the other guy did too. So I'm like, 
how does that work? How does that happen? And now, I don't know, at the time I thought it was mind-boggling, mind-bending, shocking. And now, I don't know, it just doesn't, I guess because I've been with transgender and non-binary people and I see that there, there really are. And I've got a blog post, so for the show notes in this podcast, I'm going to put a link to it. I wrote a blog on prosperity and sexuality about the science of this because people say there's two genders there is right. x x and xy or whatever yeah. and that is not true because i show in this uh, blog post the science of like 15 different possibilities everywhere on the scale of of male heterosexual and female lesbian and non-gender and binary and there's all kind of and people born with multiple gender sex organs and there's all kind of DNA and you know uh, uh, Mm -hmm. progress in the middle and of course I mean the suicide rate of transgender people is off the charts right and murder rate the murder rate the bullying the abuse rates of non-gender binary and just for gay and lesbian and you know all of the rainbow lgbqt whatever um but how much of that is not because that is an unnatural thing or it's the devil punishing you for being a bad not good religious person but the fact that all the society is programmed with all these mind viruses and all of this programming from organized religion, all of this programming from governments, all of this programming from the the pop culture data sphere, which says this is the normal way these things are done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would ask you, Joey, are there any particular like a belief you can sum up in a sentence, or like a mind virus belief, one or two or three that you think like those are some of the most toxic that most of us believe about sex or about relationships. Hmm. So I'm sure you can come up with like a list of a hundred of them, you know, but are there any that you're like, I definitely want to address that one. Oof. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I'll have to get back to you on that. I, not, one doesn't come to mind immediately. I, expect I'll uncover a lot of them like probably a scary amount of them like I want to understand is it a a common issue or are there several different ones that we can have like I highly I've never talked to you about sex whatsoever right never yeah and so I have no I can't I have no idea there um I've only recently, honestly, started talking to people about sex specifically because of this project, and it I guess has given me permission to. And I'm finding people be like, while they wouldn't normally have ever brought it up or talked about it necessarily, when I bring it up, they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, and it's my friends, you know, so we can we can be honest. I'm assuming about things, right? Um, but I think just in generally, in general, it's just this like don't talk about sex like just don't talk about it you know like and if you talk about it why are you talking to me about sex like are you trying to are you trying to have sex with me is this 
I don't know. It's just like, why can we not talk about this thing that everybody is doing, hopefully, or maybe wants to do, or maybe if you're asexual, you don't. Let's talk about that. Like, I want to understand all that, you know? Yes, absolutely. I think there's, it is just, I think because we're not talking about it or whatever, we have boiled this thing, which is so pervasive. Like Randy said, it drives all animal behavior, and it's probably the thing we talk about least. Yeah. And if you want to, yet I also have heard and believe probably this to be true, Pornhub gets more traffic than CNN.com. Interesting. You know, when the missile crisis happened in uh, Hawaii, the, the false alarm mm-hmm. a while back, I also, oh, I read this in, I think, GQ, so we can believe it. Um that Pornhub noticed, like, when that missile crisis came, like, okay, obviously people, most people got off Pornhub at the time, and then when they, they said, oh, just kidding, false alarm, the Pornhub, like, stats, traffic went through the roof, like, oh. record high, because people were like, oh, shit, we didn't die, let me go here and look at some porn, I guess, oh, I don't know. Gosh. But so, I, I just think it's, like, nobody's not doing it, uh, but we're not talking about it. Yeah. It's like a taboo in that way. And then once you start talking about it, then you get into the weeds of all this, like, we're not talking about it. And for all intents and purposes, we're not talking about vanilla sex, basically. And there's a whole lot of other, you know, situations out there. So, yeah. Um, No, and that's interesting because... I'm thinking, I'm like taking inventory of my relationships, looking at like the 10 people that I talk the most candidly with, and only one of them. I think I have one friend in my entire life, possibly in the history of all friendships, relationships I've ever had that we've talked openly about it. Mm. And even then, we like giggle when we do, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, yeah. And it's like you make the faces and everything because it's like, it's so foreign, you know? Yeah. It's so foreign. And if shame is not in place, like embarrassment is at least in place, you know? Hey, thanks for listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Do me a favor and practice the circulation law of prosperity and tell people about Prosperity TV. So if you would, just put something up on your Tumblr, your Twitter, your Facebook, your YouTube. Uh, Let people know what you think of the Power Prosperity Podcast. Even take a screenshot of your phone and maybe post that picture uh, so we can build the community here at the podcast. Thanks, guys.